and welcome to another episode of After This. My name is Carla. And I'm Daniel. And I'm Shannon. <laughs> and today I'm going to be talking about a book that I've read recently that was really interesting. It's called um, Pre- The Precipice uh, by Toby Ord. Um, so it's basically about, he, he's arguing that human humanity is standing at a, a precipice at this um, really meaningful time in our existence as a species um, where, where um, we have the power to wipe ourselves out and we mm-hmm. have the power to not do that <laughs> yep. um we've got this unique the uh, the quote that i loved from the start he says um as the gap between our power and our wisdom grows our future is subject to an ever-increasing level of risk the precipice mm-hmm. gives our time immense meaning in the grand course of history if we make it that far this is what our time will be remembered for for the highest levels of risk and for humanity opening its eyes coming into its maturity and guaranteeing its long and flourishing future this is mm. the meaning of our time mm. so it's really interesting so the author is um toby ord he's an australian philosopher um he works at oxford's future of humanity institute which i hadn't heard of until i read this book but they seem interesting to to check out a bit more and um, okay, yeah and if you have other have either of you guys heard of the effective altruism movement uh, no, I don't no, think so. No, no. no so he's, he's a big big player in that. So it's basically um, an organisation that tries to find the best and most efficient ways to help people, essentially. Mm. Oh, most effective okay. altruism. Um, yeah, so sure. trying to, um, yeah, basically get around the problem that some charities are bullshit and trying to yeah. promote yeah. the ones that are less bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that's a good <laughs> idea. Very good. Of, Using kind of evidence-based uh, approach to to judging that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually I was actually thinking about that the other the other week. Like, would, to, mm-hmm. yeah, just like who, where would you go to find where your um, money has the best value as far as charity goes? So yeah, no. yeah. Well, that's yeah, some yeah, of them just mess all their money in the marketing itself. So it's kind of like yeah, that's it. You don't really know which ones is actually good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, in some ways it's a waste, but in other ways you need to advertise to get donors. Absolutely. So yeah. it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult balancing act. It's the difference between the ones that spend the money where they should and advertise, and the ones yeah. that just advertise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, like we look the same. <laughs> yes, it, yes. Invest all your money in grown peace. It's very simple. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and it's also a good using... about the crossroads, though, because I think it's true. Because, yeah. like, I mean, humanity up to now, or roughly now, it's kind of tribal mindset, um, and the way we traditionally function has probably been completely fine. Um, it's like we've just sort of invented bigger and bigger apparatuses for us to be the way we normally are, which was kind of the tribal whatever we are um but then suddenly we're at this point where it's kind of like you can't really get a bigger tribal apparatus you <laughs> kind of have to change it fundamentally and that's mm-hmm. like we're just not computing that transference i suppose mm. yeah because that's mm. not what our brains have evolved to do mm. Mm. so i think for today i'm going to talk about um first just a little bit about what he means by existential risks and then kind of go through the different categories of risks that the book covers and just chat about each of them a little bit um and then i'm going to do this will be a two-parter um and then the second part will be um the path forward so the, the third section of the book where he talks about strategies for 
what to do about these existential risks, basically. So, so this is just the downer episode. I this will be it. the downer episode. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you bringing me down? Oh. We don't want you to feel good, Sheldon. All right, no, no. Okay, go ahead. Ruin so basically, um, I'll start by kind of defining what he means by existential risks. So it's something that wipes out every single human so that there are no more humans. That's obviously an existential risk. Um, but he also includes um, if you kind of wipe out most of humanity and destroy civilization sufficiently that we're not really ever going to be able to get back to the level we're at now. So, mm. yeah, if it just becomes impossible for the survivors to reestablish civilization, um, yeah. which is a tricky one. I don't like think there's many things in, that really do like that. major environmental stuff. So, like, we're technically alive, but... We can't connect and trade or anything. So the thing is, yeah. you sort of you wouldn't be able to develop that natural like economic growth again because we can't go outside. Or maybe we'd be able to figure out how, but you can't walk outside. You have to like it's a lot of tech. Yeah, so like we can if you know there's tribes of a hundred people, and if they all work eighty hours a week, we can get enough food to feed them, and that's that's about like, it. Have you have you played Metro? No. The game series is based on the Russian author's book. It's like oh. perfectly that. It's basically nuclear apocalypse, and then everyone lives in metro train stations in Russia. Oh, okay. So it's in, it's set in Moscow. Fantastic game. Highly recommend it. But basically, like stations become like towns, and yeah. there's bigger stations and smaller stations, and they're at different hub locations. And everyone travels by making their way through the metro tunnels, but they're like Ooh. strewn with wreckage and dangerous things and monsters. So Ooh. like. It becomes like you're really capped off as to how developed you can be because no one can easily go back and forth from any of them. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, just an example. Of them. So, yeah, something <laughs> like that. Um, and then <laughs> the third eventuality that he counts as existential collapse is um, getting into a locked in dystopia. Mm. So, you've got some oppressive totalitarian regime that's so strong that it's basically impossible for any resistance to overwhelm it, and it is keeping the people down, essentially. Yeah. Oh. So, technically, there's still humanity, but we're not doing anything good about it. So, basically, mm. 1984. That is exactly the book that he references, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was four years before I was born. That is true. No, you missed it, luckily. It was a big year, Shannon, but then luckily in the four years afterwards, everything went back to normal. It happened before I was born, Daniel, so therefore it doesn't exist. <laughs> that works. That's how history works. Yeah. It is um, my story at the end of the day. So I guess following on from um, Toby Ord's background in evidence-based um, altruism, the book is fairly pragmatic, so it does get very poetical at poetical poetic at times um and i really i actually really like those sections where he does kind of mm. wait lyrical about it um but everything's quite pragmatic he's spoken well, it's an to emotive subject you know, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah so he yeah he's, he talks to a lot of experts and kind of crunches the numbers so this isn't just you know someone's you know drunken ramblings he's actually he done sounds quite carl sagan actually really it's someone i keep thinking of mm. Mm. yeah he talks about carl he quotes carl sagan a couple of times yeah. Um, yeah, so let us move on to the juicy part, which is discussing all the different risks of things that mm. could 
destroy us. Um, so have you? Do you want to take a guess at some of the biggies, and I'll to let you know if they're. Wait, anywhere. I have. I have your. I have your. Oh, notes you got the notes. Okay. So you could just go through them. <laughs> and we could read them as you go. We're trying to stay up to date, Carla. We want to, you know, we want to be on the ball with your plan. Right. Good. Well, yeah. Done your homework. Lovely. <laughs> so, um, the first kind of uh, group of risks that he talks about are the natural risks. Um, so he does some interesting number crunching about okay, how long most species survives um but he kind of mentions that there's it's very difficult to do that and to kind of get an average idea of how long species survive um naturally and then even if we could work it out pretty well humans are really not a normal average species so um the things the main three things that he covers are asteroids and comets you know hitting Mm. the earth yeah got the dinosaurs um super volcanoes which are a really interesting topic that i didn't know much about until now and Uh, have there been many super volcanic things or like is that something that's never happened no it is one that has happened um i can't remember if it's just the once that we've got the details of i'll have to uh we'll get to it i'll I'll flick through my notes um but it's something that we can kind of could cause um similar to um a nuclear winter in that it blocks yeah, out yeah. sun um mm. oh actually i just remembered yes good we'll get to it um, uh, okay good still explosions and then finally there's a short short section of other um uh-huh. so. <laughs> i love that the species died is it why other <laughs> uh, specific <laughs> Alrighty, so um, an asteroid 10 kilometers across speeds towards the Earth. It speed it slams into the Earth's surface off the coast of Mexico at more than 60,000 kilometers an hour. Hits with the energy of 100 times its own weight in TNT. Um, this is a direct quote for the book. Uh, in just seconds, it releases the energy of 10 billion Hiroshima blasts, 10,000 times the entire Cold War nuclear arsenal. It mm-hmm. smashes a hole 30 kilometres deep into the Earth's crust, over mm-hmm. 60 times the height of the Empire State Building. Uh, everything within 1,000 kilometres is instantly killed by the impact fireball. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge tsunami that wipes out most of the Caribbean, uh, and mm-hmm. it's throws trillions of tons of rocks and dust into the sky. Some of this superheated rock rains down over millions of square kilometres. So just, yeah, flaming rocks wow. raining from the mm. sky. So wait, is this something that happened at some point or is yeah. this like something that could this happen? Is, this is the one, this is the big one outside the Gulf of Mexico. Right, okay. Uh, this is, I'm actually wearing... Um, Metal. No, no, no. <laughs> that, they reckon this stone, I forget what it's called, is from, as a result of that... Um, asteroid, like oh. onyx or something. Oh, no, it's not onyx. Um, Some... oh, I forget what it's called. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Meteor yeah, stone. Okay. There are. Um, um, yeah. Okay. And then they said that the the worst part, so the the flaming rock rain was pretty bad. Um, but the worst part pretty was bad. the yeah. pretty bad. But the worst part was the dust and the ash um, that gets yeah. up into the upper atmosphere and destroys basically the entire world. Yeah, uh, with darkness, because that that would put a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, though I assume as well, and like uh, it would heat yes, I think the the main issue is the the darkness basically, because okay, obviously so just plants, plants need can't light, do photosynthesis, and all that sort and of stuff. That 
just travels up the food chain. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a yeah. lot of animals wouldn't know when to sleep and stuff like that that are like instinctual and. Mm. Yeah. So that was three quarters of all species on Earth was annihilated in that blast. That was the one that killed the dinosaurs. Exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> so I know, um, Steve, oh. I know um, Stephen Hawking wrote a lot about this stuff about okay. like um, uh, exist- existential risk from like uh, stellar objects mainly. Um, like this kind of thing, like asteroids and meteors. And he was a big proponent of basically we need to get humans on more than one planet because yeah. as soon as we get on more than one planet, the obviously the statistical likelihood will survive goes up enormously because does, worst yeah. case, something wipes out one, the other one's still going. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was Moldavite and I'm not geographically um, gifted, so bear with We've... me on this one. But it's... <laughs> 14.8 million years ago, a meteorite struck the Earth in Czech Republic. Oh, okay. And yeah. that's where this is from. So it's like a, a gem that is literally um, out of this world. Yeah, what's it mm. called? Moldavite. Ah, oh, it's named after the guy from the X-Files. That's yeah. Actually, Daniel, like you could, if you put your ear up against it, you can hear the X-Files being. <laughs> can you? Oh, let's hear that. Keep quoting that we heard once, which was I don't remember where I heard that. Sorry, we've gone so off track. No, we have I think it was someone who I think it was a Pootie Pie episode or something. He like rigged up a dog thing and played the X Files theme with the dog noise. Anyway, um, I don't know what so, you were. But yeah, Stephen Hawking was a huge proponent of like all this stuff, basically dealing with this by spreading us out a bit. Um, mm. And obviously, I would love it if humanity ended up on more than one astral body. But, um, it would be good. Yeah. yeah. So they've, in 1994, NASA was issued a directive by Congress uh, to find and track 90% of all near-Earth objects greater than one kilometre across. So basically anything that could cause yeah. a huge problem for us. Yeah. Um, it's also quite, we're living in a lucky century. So NASA did do this. Um, so we've got a pretty good idea of most of the asteroids that are within, um, asteroids and comets that are within striking <clears throat> orbits or, or whatever. Um, so in an average century, the probability of an Earth impact is about one in 6,000 for asteroids between 1 and 10 kilometres and 1 in 1. 1.5 million for anything above 10 kilometres. Yeah. Um, but for this particular century, because we're tracking most things, they've got a pretty good idea. Um, it's only about 1 in a million chance of anything hitting us within the next 100 years. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's good. So that's something we don't – like it's something that we should definitely be keeping an eye on. Thank you, Jupiter and Saturn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've heard, I, I don't know if that's exactly true, but I've heard they're widely credited with like sucking in a lot of the um, slower moving asteroids and stuff um, as they make their way into the solar system, like because they have such enormous gravity. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this one's something that NASA's doing a really good job of, um, mm. and not just um, the US, but also the United Nations did a lot of work um, organizing 
that work so that we we do know where most of the large asteroids well the thing is that of all the industries the space industry is one of the ones that does like almost have to cooperate because the Mm -hmm. thing is they have to be able to see in every direction and they have to launch from multiple places and so you need facilities and launches and everything all over the planet i guess i guess then sorry i guess then the only thing we couldn't really predict is if um the orbit of um saturn or jupiter was to redirect something towards us like it's moving too fast to be sucked in, but it'll yeah. change its thing. Oh, and just target us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, 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 it's kind of true because like, like if you missing, look at missing. it, yeah. no, right for it. Ah! you could have, yeah, you could have changes. I guess we'd see them for a little while away as they're coming from those planets. But yeah, definitely something could get theoretically redirected at us. Mm. Um, yeah, good point. Yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah, so that's that's asteroids and comets. Uh, the next natural risk to speak about are supervolcano eruptions. So um, there was one called the Toba eruption. It was 74,000 years ago. Um, a supervolcano blew in Indonesia. Um, so think of a map. Think of Indonesia. This mm. blast covered India in a blanket of ash a metre thick. Wow. And, was, and they found traces as far away as Africa. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, like, yeah, and like with asteroids and comets, the real kind of worldwide existential threat is the uh, darkened sky. Yeah. So they reckon it lowered global temperatures by several degrees for several years. Um, there was a much smaller one in 1815, um, so less than a hundredth of the size, uh, which caused a global cooling of one degree, uh, which doesn't necessarily sound like much, but even the US uh, suffered crop failures. Uh, It was called the year without a summer. Uh, Mm. And it snowed in June in some places in the US that year. Wow. Just a quick question on that. Um, Based off um, it like creating a blanket, so it would lock temperatures in to a certain extent, but it'll also block like a summer, for example. Is that is that sort of correct? Like, it's why blocking, it, blocking the sunlight yeah, is the way. Yeah, that's just because like it's just because when I like without um the extra bit of thought into it, you mm. think no sun, it's going to drop in a lot of temperature, but it also yeah. creates that blanket holding the yeah. temperature. You kind of, yeah, you're kind of greenhousing the heat that is, is there, there, but at the but, same but, time, but, you're not getting any new heat. So yeah, it's kind or, of like... Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure if the ash that you get is does have much of a greenhouse effect, but it, it it may, I'm not sure. It might just be that it you do still get some sunlight through. Okay. I would have thought it would have thrown a lot of like... I would have thought there would have been a lot of carbon blown up with the explosion, but maybe not. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, that yeah, sounds probable. But mm. again, we've we're kind of touching on yes. a geology blind spot again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a lot of blind spots, Carla. We resolve those by guessing. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I resolve my blind spots in when I drive my vehicle. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I wouldn't assume this car like, there. Tried to check my blind spot. Nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> he can see me. <laughs> <laughs> right, he checked it for me. Thank you. <laughs> You've got this great built-in audio sensor. It's horns. <laughs> oh. Oh, Thank you need blind spots sensor. when the other guy has a horn in his car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, keep going, Carla. No, that's good. Better. So the, uh, the chance of a supervolcano erupting in the next 100 years, they're putting at about 1 in 10,000, which is... 
reasonably high when you think about it. Um, the one that everyone's watching at the moment is Yellowstone, um, which is in yeah, the US. You've probably heard of that one. Um, that is, you know, possibly going to be a, a super volcano. They are, which I thought was really interesting. NASA is conducting very preliminary investigations, is the quote, uh, of trying to work out how to slowly drain the energy and the heat out of the area rather than just waiting for it to explode. Ah, uh, yeah. That's obviously risky. <laughs> so that's why yeah. it's still very prime, very preliminary. Um, yeah. But, you know, they're thinking about it and they're going to try to see if there's anything they can do, which I thought was quite NASA interesting. NASA all the cool stuff. Sorry? NASA just does all the cool stuff. Hmm. Like, for a space okay. agency, they just seem to get involved just all over the place. I mean, I guess they know a lot about, like, uh, planetary tectonics and stuff mm-hmm. from all the observation of other planets and stuff as well, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So that's super volcanoes. Um, the last main natural threat that he talks about are stellar explosions. Um, so, uh, like gamma radiation. Yeah, gamma gamma radiation um, and supernova. Um, mm. So, do, 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 do. yeah, short bursts of, of gamma waves coming from a exploding star deep within mm. the, the Milky Way. Um, so the most uh, likely way that that could cause havoc on Earth um, is the production of nitrogen oxides that would alter the Earth's climate and dramatically erode the ozone layer. Um, so the idea is that when the gamma ray and the cosmic rays hit the atmosphere, it's going to react with some of the gases um, and yeah, change the, the makeup of the atmosphere. Mm. So the... yeah, I remember, I remember hearing a, I remember hearing a thing where they were talking about like the early formation. I don't know if I've talked to you guys about this, the early yeah. formation of the universe and the theory that like um, it was gamma radiation that kind of kept species from being able to evolve because like obviously as all the stars are continuously exploding and all that sort of stuff, gamma is just going everywhere mm-hmm. and it's constantly like, you know, if you get hit with gamma radiation, it's like super deadly. So, like, it would just continuously disintegrate cells. So then it's only within the last mm. couple of million years or whatever it is, um, maybe tens of millions of years, that it's sort of calmed down enough for life to evolve. Interesting. Um, yeah. Sorry, I just, remember re- I just remember reading that. Apparently they discovered gamma radiation because something like two-thirds of the way across the galaxy exploded. And mm-hmm. um, they got this burst of gamma radiation. They had no idea what it was. And that's how they identified gamma rays. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. But they're like, wow, it must have been insane if it was two-thirds of the way across the galaxy for a while. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, there's a, there's a little paragraph here about how it was discovered. It was during the Cold War. Yeah. And mm. it was U.S. spy satellites. They were looking uh, for yeah. Soviet nuclear tests by detecting yep. gamma rays. And then they were like... They detected them, but they're like, hang on, why is it coming from out there instead of Russia? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And then they were like, oh, wait, that's, and then they discovered that that's, I think it happened again. And then that's how they discovered that it was a consistent phenomenon and they said it was gamma radiation. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's something that is not like super duper well understood at the moment, Um, but they're putting the chance of a supernova in our next century as less than one in 50 million and gamma ray birth burst as less than 2.5, one in 2.5 million. So yeah, no, apparently there are probabilities, but this is something that we 
really would have trouble doing anything about. Like with the yeah. asteroids, you've got your Armageddon plot of you can try to do something to knock it out of the way, and that's yeah. like, I'm sure it wouldn't happen exactly how it happens in the movies, but that's exactly that's how it's going to happen. They're going to fly in Bruce Willis. Like, they're going to fly in their space shuttles that seem to be able to go further <laughs> than the moon <laughs> and land and blow everything up. That's that's how science works, Carla. Exactly how we will do it. Oh, I had this is a, a tangent, but I I wanted to tell you I heard this on another podcast the other day. Um, so recently, the one of the rovers on Mars um, was digging, and the Earth was a lot well, the Earth the Mars was a lot clumpier than <laughs> they had anticipated, uh, and the drill got stuck. Um, yep. And they couldn't get it free. And in the end, they got it to get its shovel and just hit itself to try to dislodge it. And it worked. (laughs) Of course it did. The vibrations. But the funniest part. I was imagining this guy in the thing. What do we do with our multi-billion dollar rover? (laughs) Hit itself with a shovel. I was just trying to think harder. I was like, think, think, damn it, it, think. And it's like, oh, three, yeah. (laughs) the, The thing that makes that I find it like, this is the funniest part, but it's also really sensible, is that they spent months doing practice runs and simulations on how it would hit itself in the head. Ah! Yes! <laughs> That's fantastic. It's just like comes out of the testing phase, I've been made to abuse myself. <laughs> I was like, the robot now has like a, a, a personality. It won't actually move forward. It's like, spank me, daddy. <laughs> I'm imagining like a Wally situation. It's communicating with its buddy who's like an AI. Like, what have they got you doing today? I mean, yeah. in the head with a shovel all day. <laughs> what? <laughs> in case I get stuck. Oh. <laughs> uh. Stupid, love it. Um, yeah. Oh, so that kind of that rounds out the the main natural risks um, that that he talks about in the book. There are other things. Um, well, what else does he mention? The, oh, yeah, the no, sun apparently, yeah, the, thing with the gamma rays. Oh, oh yeah. Apparently, I don't know if this is the same phenomena, but it was measured from a um, uh, a neutron star. Um, mm-hmm. It's a kind of neutron star called a magnetar. And a mm-hmm. magnetar is like a super dense, again, version of a ma- of a neutron star. And apparently it's got so much sheer force, it has like, it's like earthquakes because it's pushing on itself, but they're obviously they're star quakes because it's a star oh, having wow. it. And it splits, like the surface splits and shoves itself back together. But when it splits and does these, there's so much force and energy in its star quakes that it releases these beams sort of thing of um uh radiation of mm-hmm. gamma radiation i think that's what they discovered i think that that's also how they discovered a magnetar um yeah, right. it's basically it has the star quake and this like wave beam of energy goes in one direction but obviously if it, you're in any other direction you wouldn't detect it but yeah. um yeah, no, just the idea is this thing two-thirds of the way across the galaxy that's having yeah. these little earthquake starquake things and we're detecting it like it's it must be insane yeah 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 uh so next he moves on to current anthropogenic risks so anthropogenic Mm -hmm. means generated by humans um the first one well uh, basically all of them are fairly obvious the first one he talks about is nuclear weapons um obviously we're at the point now where we can blow each other up 
um, <laughs> to the extent yep. of um, a nuclear winter. So similar to the supervolcanoes and the asteroid and the comet hitting. Um, obviously, if you're in the zone that gets hit by the bomb itself, that's bad for you. But if we have enough of these bombs going off all around the world in a full-blown nuclear war, um, the amount of debris that gets kicked up into the atmosphere is probably going to be enough to, well, I mean, depending on the scale, might be enough to block out the sun and kill us that way yet again. Mm. Uh, do they, what's the, do, what's the, the number that they reckon needs to be fired before something like that will happen? Or is it more about the location? Well, it depends on yield, because obviously you have these yeah. super high yield. Like the, the Russians invented a bomb called the Tsar, um, the Tsar bomb, which basically... That's a cool name for a bomb. Yeah, was, yeah the Tsar bomb was the greatest, is the biggest nuclear weapon ever tested. Um, and they, because they, they blow up this island north of Russia called Novaya Zemalia. They bomb mm-hmm. it over and over again with nukes. And um, they tested the czar there as well. And, like, mm-hmm. it's just... They, they have footage on YouTube of the explosion. It's just, like... Like, I'm glad nothing lives there because it was absolutely enormous. Like, it's the kind of thing where it's reaching up and up into cloud layers sort of thing. Wow. It's, it's, it's huge. Um, and then, yeah. So if you dropped a few of them, <laughs> you'd definitely be um, ruining the... Uh, uh, the planet's ecosystem. But I don't know. I don't know what the number of them would be. Like the the big yield strategic. Yeah, it depends. It de- yeah, it depends on the strength and the like, like where they hit and that kind of thing. Mm. I, you know, what, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the call. I don't think we'll ever have an actual nuclear war. I don't think I'm it'll not... happen. I'm glad you are making the call, Daniel. Someone no, no, had to purely, do it. Purely Someone because the kinds humanity. of people that actually end up. Um, in these, you know, end up at the heads of these countries are usually very educated, very wealthy people usually. And the thing yeah. is, usually those people have had a life, and all the people they surround oh, themselves with... Oh, I've lost with... you. Oh, can you hear me now? Oh, the audio is cutting in and out. I think, I think I've got you back now, sorry. Good. Say again. Yep. Uh, so I was going to say, like, they're so clicked into kind of what I'd call the global economy... Um, that a lot of these people have grown mm. up all over the world and all this stuff. And the thing is, they're all thinking about what they're going to do after, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm thinking even a country that's getting assaulted by another one, I think what they'd rather do is make martyrs of themselves and basically be like, I could have nuked you, but I chose not to kind of thing. Mm. And then let mm. the after peace process, because I just don't think wars will happen the same way that they used to in the way that, you know, the international community gets involved. Um, I think, yeah, I just, I see too many reasons why people would, you know, not want to, even yeah. if they were losing a war, like uh, that they'd rather be, you know, and then they can figure it out in the peace process at the end. Cause mm. you know, everyone knows if you're the guy that nukes everyone, like you're going to ruin yourself and them. And everyone's thinking about after the war, like what's the peace process, the surrender process, everything else. Mm. And, um, if you nuke them and they nuke you and it's all just mutually assured destruction, it's like the best process is you surrender and make a big martyr of yourself mm. saying, I could have nuked you, but I didn't. I'm a real big hero. And everyone thinks, hey, he's right. You know, mm. you, <laughs> he could have. <laughs> one of the problems is that you, you sometimes don't have the time to stop and make those sensible think, decisions. But I mean, on the yeah. other hand, I'm going to, 
we can chat a bit more. I'm going to kind of talk about a couple of near misses in terms of nuclear strikes. Yeah, yeah, no, go for um, it. So obviously the um, Cuban Missile Crisis is the most well-known one, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm just going to talk about three that um, Ord mentions in his book as well. Um, so the first one is the training tape incident uh, from the 9th of November 1979. Um which was, I'll quote directly from it, at 3am a large number of incoming missiles, a full-scale Soviet first strike, appeared on the screens at four US command centres. The US had only minutes to determine a response before the bulk of their own missiles would be destroyed. Senior commanders initiated a threat assessment committee, placing their ICBMs on high alert, preparing nuclear bombers for takeoff and scrambling fighter planes to intercept the incoming bombers. But... When they checked the raw data from the early warning system, there were no signs of any missiles and they realised it was a false alarm. The screens had mm. been showing a realistic simulation of a Soviet attack from a military exercise that had mistakenly been sent to the live computer system. Mistakenly. <laughs> 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 that's a big air quote there, I reckon. Yeah. Mistakenly. I think that's, well, the only, that, that's the only criteria that I can actually, I think will ever actually maybe cause it. Yeah, some like sort mistakes. of like cyber warfare, like, like hijacking and like literally just... Like people thinking someone else has done it sort yeah, of thing. Like yes. they're like, quick, quick, fire the shit! Yeah. But I mean, the fact, the fact that it has, like that kind of thing has happened multiple times and someone has always yeah. stopped and not done it. Yeah. Um, there was another one from the... Soviet side um, in September 1983. Um, this time the screens at the command bunker for the Soviet satellite-based early warning system showed five ICBMs launching from the United States. The duty, now this one's interesting, um, the duty officer, Stanislav Petrov, had instructions to report any detective launch to his superiors who had a policy of immediate nuclear retaliatory strike. Mm -hmm. For five tense minutes, he considered the case, and then, despite his remaining uncertainty, he reported it to his commanders as a false alarm. Mm. He reasoned that a US first strike with just five missiles was too unlikely, and he also mm. noted that the missiles' vapor trails could not be identified. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's I think a, that's the thing. Everyone, you know, everyone is so aware. Yeah. Right. You know, they're so aware of the culture and the risks and everything else around it. Like, I think they're all like, I don't want to be that person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so everyone does everything they possibly can um, before they do anything. Yeah. Which is encouraging. <laughs> it is. It is. And then the final um, incident listed um, in this little section of the book uh, is from January 1995. So uh -huh. a little bit later. Um and in after 1995, yeah, after the end of the Cold War, Russian radar detected the launch of a single nuclear, single nuclear missile aimed at Russia, um, perhaps with the intention of blinding Russian radar with an electromagnetic pulse to hide a larger mm -hmm. follow-up strike. Um, the warning quickly escalated all the way up the chain of command, leading President Yeltsin to open the Russian nuclear briefcase and consider whether to authorise nuclear retaliation. But satellite systems showed no missiles, and the radar soon determined that the apparent missile would land outside of Russia. Um, Yeltsin closed the briefcase. The false mm. alarm had been caused by the launch of a Norwegian scientific rocket to study the Northern Lights. Russia had been notified, but word hadn't reached the new their radar operators. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So yeah, look again. People don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I. I seriously think even if like 
Yeah, I, I can see too many reasons why people would think around it. I just mm. don't think like it's a it's it's they're weapons that we have that could destroy the world. They're hugely risky and we shouldn't have them. But mm. the thing is, it's basically I don't see it happening. Like people actually using yeah. them. I see something like North Korea may get desperate enough eventually to nuke someone because they can. Mm. Um, but then they'll just get wiped off the map by conventional armed forces so yeah i you know like maybe there'd be anomalies but like in terms of developed countries shooting at the other developed countries of nuclear weapons i just yeah i don't see that. where did they get yeah. their nukes from or the uranium for there was a guy um they did some trading with pakistan and some other countries um the thing is there's a guy named something khan i can't remember what his first name was but something khan he's like a pakistani nuclear scientist and he actually, like, you know, farmed out and did contract work for a few places to help them get their nuclear program set up. Yeah, yeah. Like he's like he's like a well. I think he's dead now, but he's like he was a well-known guy who like went around and helped countries that shouldn't have nukes get nukes. <laughs> also, the thing is, China kind of I think helped North Korea a bit, um, even though they don't like them. Mm. They want them more than they want U.S. allies on their doorstep. Um, so yeah like countries like pakistan india israel uh north korea south korea probably um all have nukes anyway really any developed country that wants them can get their hands on them as long as they're sitting outside the um the uh the rules so to speak like (laughs) germany doesn't have any because they don't want to break the rules but they could get them if they you know really wanted to Um, yeah yeah yeah, so they um, this chapter goes on to talk a little, little bit about the fact that the so nuclear fallout probably wouldn't kill everybody on Earth. It would cause a mm. lot of damage in the area. Um, he says the main way it could happen would be firestorms in burning cities make these huge columns of smoke that go high enough in the atmosphere that it won't be rained out. Um, and so mm. then you just get this cloud of soot all around the earth which would block sunlight and then the crops would fail and everyone would kind of starve to death um mm. they think this is not particularly likely um to quote the book it says no current researchers on nuclear winter are on record saying that it would uh, and many have explicitly said that it is unlikely um mm. and that's regards to a nuclear winter wiping us all out so mm could cause a huge amount of damage definitely don't do it but it's probably not going to happen okay so it's probably a nuclear winter is not likely to um isn't as realistic as once thought is that pretty much what it is well it's more it's more like it's not likely to kill everything uh, Everything. that's including the unlikelihood of um enough nations actually using nuclear weapons for it to happen in the first place so i think Mm. if if you take that as red and say, like, yes, it, let's say that there was enough strikes, I think it's a little bit more likely than the, than what they list. But, yeah, not mm. likely, basically. Okay. Um, especially once you take into consideration, like, the one they list is New Zealand. Like, it's kind of far away from everything. It's not really – it's mm. unlikely to get too involved in a big war. So yeah. probably people will leave it alone and then New Zealand can be the cradle of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> too bad. all right so i'll move on to next um the other anthropogenic like current risk um that or discusses in the book which is climate change uh, and then other types of environmental damage um so 
The interesting thing with climate change, and I'll quote him directly, unlike many of the other risks I address, the central concern here isn't that we would meet our end this century, but that it may be possible for our actions now to all but lock in such a disaster for the future. So mm-hmm. basically we can, it's not going to kill us in the next couple of years, but the stuff that we do in the next couple of years could lock it in. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah cause it's dictating things further away. Yeah. And it's saying that the way that it, um, it can make life harder for everyone when you've got lots of droughts and you've got water shortages and heat waves and, and mm. all those, it's a stressor, um, yeah. that can, make all the other type of risks more likely to happen. Like you're more likely to use a nuke if your people are starving to death. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And you've got massive shortages. Everyone's getting the fight or flight thing. They're all freaked out. And then yeah. suddenly, yeah, bombing people, burning things, blowing stuff up sounds more reasonable because you're afraid. Yeah. So mm. um, the greenhouse effect, the runaway greenhouse effect is um, obviously what the main thing that, people are um, really Mm. worried about in terms of climate change. So as the atmosphere warms and you get a lot more um, greenhouse gases uh, keeping the heat in and producing this feedback based on the water cycle. Um, Mm. So they think something like this probably happened on Venus um, Mm. and it could, yeah, could happen yeah, because yeah. I think Venus is the only planet that rotates the other way or something. Like, oh, it, it, like all the planets rotate one way, but Venus is the other, and they think it's because it had some cataclysmic collision or something. Oh, okay. Mm. And yeah, like, I don't know if I, I, one of them rotates the other way. I thought it was Venus. Yeah, I hate it. Every time you, they should do that in all those astrology animations because they always show them going the same way. <laughs> it's one of them I, I they... thought rotates the wrong, or it's completely off kilter. Uh, Pluto's off kilter. I think they go around the sun, like it's all what, like counterclockwise or it's all clockwise, um, but it's the, the day goes backwards, I think, potentially. So it says, so... No, it says for starters, it's, I just looked it up, it yeah, spins cool. in the opposite direction from most other planets, including Earth, so that on Venus, the sun rises in the west. Yeah. So it's yeah. still going around the sun in the same direction. It's just yes. spinning, yes. spinning in the opposite spinning direction. Spinning the opposite way, yeah. So, mm. yeah, I remember reading, I don't know, I remember reading somewhere that its um, orbit's also a bit funny, like in terms mm-hmm. of its rotation. Like it rotates the other way and it's off kilter. So like they think it got hit by some absolutely enormous thing, like right. really early in its development or something. Um, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, it's a hellscape. Cool. It's a hellscape, <laughs> we want, basically. We don't want to replicate Venus. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, uh, he's saying that current research suggests that a runaway greenhouse effect cannot be triggered by anthropogenic emissions alone. Um, so it's not necessarily clear that we could trigger that bad a, a, a Venus. So where you get, let's say, 40 mm. degrees warming. Um, yeah. So we're... Probably it's it's an open question, he says. People are still kind of working on it, but it's more likely to be kind of sub-disaster levels where, you know, mm-hmm. the equator becomes completely unlivable, huge areas yeah. of the earth becomes completely sterile, but mm-hmm. we can still, you know, there are certain areas where 
humanity and and hopefully some other creatures um can it's, survive it's it's kind of like you're hitting the reset switch on the whole um you know ecological process because it's mm. basically all the conditions are different so like some mm. stuff might survive but it's kind of like you're throwing everything back to when everything started so then everything has to re-evolve and redevelop um with these new criteria of the new planet and obviously, that's not going to be good for humans. <laughs> yeah, no, it is not. Um, he also mentions two potential amplifying feedbacks that are particularly concerning um, that are not currently incorporated into the IPCC warning estimates. So this is kind of a risk on top of what people are already saying, um, is uh, the melting Arctic permafrost mm-hmm. uh, and the release of methane from the deep ocean. Um, so if one of those two things happen... Um, that's going to have way more carbon in the atmosphere than anything that we're currently doing. Uh, so how that... would we release methane from the deep ocean? How would that happen? I think it's... Um, where are we? Methane clathrate is an ice-like substance containing both water and methane molecules. It can be found in vast deposits in sediment at the bottom of the ocean. Because it is so hard to reach, we know very little about how much there is in total. Um, Mm. Estimates range from twice as much carbon as humanity has emitted so far up to 11 times as much. Um, And if the ocean ocean warms enough, uh, they might melt. Some of the methane will go up. um, And because it's not well understood, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's bad. Yes, it is. So it's very, (laughs) very difficult to make any... Calls yeah, because you can't you can't get down that deep to have a look or anything. Yeah, but you can't. Too. But yeah. like, it's like one little probe, and like, can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he talks about the um, temperature humidity threshold. So it's it's quite plausible that yeah, we'd reach a point where large sections of the Earth is completely uninhabitable. It'd be impossible for humans to survive there without, um, you know, air conditioning and mm-hmm. really artificial landscapes i suppose yeah yeah so like, you have to completely recreate your environment yeah. Mm. yeah um cool all right i'll move on for that one and they briefly also mention other types of environmental damage um uh, there's not really that much there population growth is sometimes um mentioned as a, a possibility but it I think it's basically most experts say that the human population isn't going to keep growing at an exponential rate. It is going to kind of level off um, because Mm. that's the pattern that you see as developing nations become developed and the childhood mortality rate drops. People start Mm. having generally often think the birth rate goes slightly below replacement. So each couple has mm. just slightly less than two children. So it mm. it will even out is what most experts say. Um, yeah. And we have a lot of um, agriculture technology that we can get better with. Like mm. we haven't really hit a ceiling on that. So we're probably going to be able to feed people. Yeah. 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 Cause yeah. I mean, that's the thing. That's, that's the thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's it was mortality, but the other thing was also just huge numbers of people up to about a hundred years ago or even fifty years ago lived in agricultural societies, and mm. so the thing is, families were like, "Hey, we should have eight kids because we have tons of food, but no people to work on the farm." 
So yeah. it's like, yeah. So now if we have lots of kids, they can just help on the farm. We'll have plenty of food. Like, mm. but then obviously, as you live in more techie societies and stuff gets more expensive, you don't need that many. So you have like one or two, and yeah, yeah. yeah. So they reckon um, population will top out at about eleven billion people. So challenging, but not impossible, basically. And yeah. then they're saying if if we get a problem in the other direction, if people start having significantly fewer than two children, a replacement rate, and the population starts dipping, um, it'd be pretty easy to just use public policy to encourage people to have kids. So you just mm. give, give them free childcare, free education, tax benefits, yeah. that kind of thing. And well, the thing is, I mean, in that even economically in that situation, yeah. suddenly everyone would probably have more money anyway because, mm. like, there's easy to get work and everything else. And then so you, you, you sit in there feeling confident that your kids would be able to get good jobs and all that sort of stuff, so you don't feel afraid of having more kids. And I think that's one yeah. of the dictators. Like, because I think there's probably a lot of families that would happily have three or even four kids. But the thing is, they don't want to take care of that many because it's expensive and time consuming and everything else. But if the society's like needs it and there's lots of work and lots of money going around, but not enough people, then tons of people would have more kids, I'm sure. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, so that kind of rounds off the second group of risks um, that are discussed in the book. Um, the next ones, the interesting ones, is the future risks. Um, mm. So risks that he can kind of see coming and that, that other experts can kind of see coming. Uh, mm -hmm. Interestingly, <laughs> the first one on the list is a pandemic. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yay. Uh, we're so, living it. Now. <laughs> we are living it now. No. So obviously the current COVID-19 pandemic is unlikely to completely wipe us out. And if I'm wrong on that, there'll be no one to listen to the podcast and tell me that I'm wrong about that. So I feel <laughs> confident in saying it. <laughs> I think it, it's, it's kind of like those ones where it has a, like, you know, it cuts out a whole section of society or something. And then it like, you know, causes it. I think it's more the poverty that it creates that is going to be almost you know, more deadly than the virus yeah. itself. And something but, that he, uh, he keeps stressing and that I think is really important to say is that he's not saying that this stuff is going to be fun. He's just saying he doesn't think it will wipe the entire of humanity out. So, yeah. you know, a, yeah. a super volcano, a nuclear war, climate change, we might not get completely wiped out, but it's still not going to be fun. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> so the, he talks, um, and this is something that's quite interesting, the pandemics are listed as kind of a future risk or a slightly anthropogenic risk. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that humans, um, the way that we live makes it more likely for pandemics to hit us than to a more natural species. So mm. with farming, we've got a whole lot of animals living in unhealthy conditions close to humans. Mm -hmm. Um Diseases that come from animals sometimes are far more deadly than diseases that have evolved with humans over time. Um, I think I mentioned this back in the smallpox um, episode, um, mm. that basically most pathogens, disease-causing organisms, tend to reach like co-evolve with their host to a point where they don't kill them super quickly because they want to be passed on to the next person and mm. if your current host just dies immediately you're not going to go anywhere so then yeah. when a disease is able to cross from 
animals into humans, sometimes it's super deadly for a while while it kind of gets used to it. Yeah, because yeah. it's it's mod it's modulated for the animal. Like it's not used. Mm. To, it's not normally working on humans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the other issue is obviously we live at a much higher density than most species in in nature yeah. do. So that makes it easy. And we to probably travel them. a lot more. <laughs> we travel a lot more, and we can travel, you know, from one side of the earth to another in a day and a half. Yeah. Um. So very, very easy to, to spread things around. Mm, um, yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, you know, we've, we understand pathogens a lot better now. Like we, we know antibiotics, we have some antivirals. They're a bit harder to make, but we're getting better at it. Um, we've got vaccination progress. Uh, we've got better sanitation and hygiene. So mm. a lot of things that can kind of help mitigate some of the risks that we've created um, by the way that we live yeah. currently. We're not quite living in Black Plague City anymore where it's like lots of density and no hygiene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, doctors well, wash not... their hands in between surgeries now. I was going to say, well, hopefully we get the toilet paper back, otherwise <laughs> maybe coming back to dark times. Yeah, yeah. Yes, very um, dark ages. But it'll be called the, the Brown Plague. <laughs> It'll be the brown ages. <laughs> oh, bad. So, a naturally occurring pandemic is unlikely to wipe us out. There is a much more sinister angle to this, which is it's possible for someone to make a virus or bacteria deliberately to kill as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. More and more, we have the technologies to do this. Um, is that like to do with like our like DNA editing and RNA editing yeah. sort of stuff that we're doing? You can transfer that across to a virus and like code yeah. recode it into something else. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, this uh, I, I vaguely remember when this came out, but in in 2012, um, a Dutch virologist Ron Fuchs I, I can't speak Dutch Fauchier F O U C H I E R um, published details of a gain-of-function experiment on the recent H5N1 strain of bird flu. Um, so the H5N1, that's just kind of the way that we classify different strains of influenza. Um, but mm. this was the bird flu pandemic from 2012. Yep. Um, and this uh, researcher wanted to understand better how the virus might pass from human to human. So one of the reasons it wasn't, you know, a huge deal. I mean, it killed, a, it was very, very deadly, but it didn't spread around the world terribly um, because it didn't mm. pass from human to human very well. So this guy wanted mm. to study that so that we'd be better prepared if it did happen so that we could recognize it and we could start thinking about how to, you know, stop it. But in the process of doing that, he made one that you can transmit from human to human. <laughs> right. is it, is it, did that just make it more survive, like um, survive in more conditions or something like that? So therefore, it could be passed in different well, ways. Well, I don't know, um, and nobody knows because they censored yeah. the paper before it was published. <laughs> it, that's uh, just so. That's just, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no one redoes it. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't, I haven't read the paper, so I don't know exactly what was and wasn't censored. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the plot of the division, the game, the division. This guy he hates American capitalism, so he infects money with this strain of influenza, and then puts it in all. He hands it out as like a fake bank worker during Black Friday, 
and then all of New York goes insane and buys everything on Black Friday and infects themselves. So it's like it's called the I think it's called the Green the Green Plague or something. It's yeah, interesting setup. Pretty crappy game, but interesting setup. It sounds like a like a B grade sci fi. I think it'd work best as a bad movie. The story itself was mm. kind of cool, but yeah, the game is just iffy. That's anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there's there's the possibility that research strains will get accidentally released and we mentioned this mm-hmm. as well about um smallpox in a previous episode so that's obviously a risk um and then what if the there's... flu was more deadly we need to study it let's make one really <laughs> deadly oh whoops <laughs> dropped it out the window and then obviously there's a threat of deliberate misuse so um, I'll quote here. This is an interesting. Uh, humanity has a long and dark history of disease as a weapon. There are records dating back to 1320 BCE describing a war in Asia Minor where infected sheep were driven across the border to That's spread. That's Turkey, by the way. Tularema. Thank you. Tularemia? Tularemia. So, yeah, very, very early on in humans trying to kill each other they tried to kill each other with diseases mm. so well, obviously- i remember the, i remember the earliest form of biological warfare was apparently chucking um uh dead cows and catapults and they'd launch them over the walls into um oh, fortresses true, yeah. and basically just wait to starve them out because the cows would spread disease inside the fortress yeah <clears throat> so it's yeah it's something that that has been done and there you know there are international treaties saying please don't use bioweapons um, yeah. and you know yeah. people signed it yeah so it's um yeah hard to hard to tell and it's similar i guess it's similar to the nuclear war in that it's something that could cause so much damage that hopefully no one really wants to pull the trigger on it yeah, hopefully. We <laughs> um, <laughs> saw how trigger happy humanity got with chemical weapons during World War One. <laughs> yeah, but we we mostly stopped using them, didn't we? Though we yeah, except America likes to play the edge of like what's legal and what isn't by yeah, um, but... using like white phosphorus, mm-hmm. where it's like you're not allowed to drop these on people, but they are very good as smoke, like to block right. lines of sight. But if one ends up falling on the guy you're actually targeting, you know, and he dies. Ah, I missed. Yeah. I meant to land in front of him, you know. Like, there's a yeah. lot of stuff that they do that I would fall sort of on the edge of right. like that's kind of legal. And like some of the the um, gases they use to like, you know, um, incapacitate people is kind yeah. of on the edge of a chemical weapon. But it's mm-hmm. like, ah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that happens. Um, he also floats the theory that one extra reason like a nuclear weapon once oh, you've sorry, launched I'm, it sorry oh. i'm gonna forget this if i don't say it so no, 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 no. <laughs> interesting point on um hollow point rounds are illegal in war uh-huh. um hollow point basically is the end is hollow um so basically and i'm because dum-dum rounds are illegal i think hollow points are as well in the geneva convention but basically the idea is it's a bullet that hits you in fragments inside your body and splits up so then it basically it it shreds its way through you kind of like a mini shotgun round um and they're legal as part of the geneva convention but they're not illegal in domestic policing so a lot of police Hmm. have handguns with hollow point rounds it's very common (laughs) so it's like oh no no you can't use that at war 
But a cop could use it to shoot <laughs> <a drug deal. laughs> We can't use it against the enemy, but we can use it against <laughs> ourselves. It's technically not the military. <laughs> uh, dumb. Wonderful. Anyway, that's what I mean by the laws are really kind of elastic. Anyway, yeah. 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 Um, one other reason that bioweapons might not get used is because, you know, if, if you fire off a nuclear, wep- a nuclear bomb, it's unlikely to turn around and hit you but that's easy to do with a bioweapon it's very easy for it to accidentally kill your own people mm. once you've released it so yeah that's another thing it's got going for it in terms yeah. of not. we may also cyber warfare ourselves into a, an apocalypse that we can't stop because it's obviously they're autonomous yeah that's there is the next that actually brings us nicely into the next major um threat that he discusses, uh, which is that of unaligned AI. So by mm. unaligned, he means AI that, for whatever reason, does not have the same goals as humanity. Yeah. Like it makes it, it's decided to do its own thing. So it's Skynetics. Yeah. yeah, and that's not always, you know, I don't want to say deliberate because they're not actually sentient at this point, but it, yeah. it can be... It can be just poorly written up. programming. Yeah, so the thing exactly. is like the thing thinks it's doing what it's programmed to do, but it's actually doing something else because it doesn't yeah. know how to process the information properly. Yeah. yeah. And AI is getting really good. So we probably already know that it can beat grandmasters in chess. Yeah. Um, but recently they And StarCraft. And StarCraft, cool. Uh... <laughs> they had it. They had. Did you see those, Shan? In StarCraft. Yeah, there was. They they hooked up the Google DeepMind or whatever it is AI, and yeah. they and they yeah shred it. They made no them, They made it go up against a bunch of pros, and it beat all of them. Yeah, it would like it's that good now that even in five v five like Dota, the AI thing can communicate with each other yeah. better than people and predict mm-hmm. human movement. Oh, yeah, them. absolutely. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely at that point. It was it's like... really funny. It beat the guy who was a master at StarCraft using only the two most basic units. It oh, used wow. just zealots and, you know, like, you know, the two basic Protoss units. You might not, Carla, but like, it's, the, it's basically the, the regular melee guy and the regular range guy. Yeah. It just made tons of them yeah. and used them really expertly. It's just, it's just <clears throat> yeah, it's just that... At the same time, it can predict your movements, your range, as well as where it needs to be and where it can counter and do everything at perfect timing. It's not fair. Yeah. But I just thought it was amazing how quickly it went from like beating like one-on-one chess and like you know, the infamous, uh, infamously the Go champion. Mm. Well. Yeah. Like, that's I, But yeah, I the fact it. that it can teamwork better than people now as well yeah. and like strategize based off it, especially yeah. considering there's so many different characters yeah. and all the different moves and all the different combinations, it's able to like learn that itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's a point now where you don't need to, you don't need to tell it, you know, this, this dude does this and here's a good strategy. It, it works it out. Yeah. yeah. I have and, a uh, very melodramatic quote from the Go champion that got beaten by the algorithm. <laughs> oh, so yeah, nice. Yeah. After humanity spent thousands of years improving our tactics, computers tell us that humans are completely wrong. I would go so far as to say not a single human has touched the edge of the truth of Go. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing is, it's like we've gotten to the point where we've developed enough ability to develop things that are smarter than us. So, and like being the fundamentally flawed human structure that we are, um, 
yeah, we're we're mm-hmm. we're gonna have to figure out a way to live with AI. Yeah, and definitely. it's and it's very difficult to kind of lock in human values or try to stop it from. You know, because the 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 classic example is like you give it a task, um, mm. and it it takes on the task, but it can it can um, predict that if it tells you this particular thing, you might turn it off, and then it couldn't do its task, so it won't tell you the thing mm. because if it gets turned off, it can't do its task, and it wants to do its task. Yeah. So it can be be very difficult to put in those kind of safety features. And it's so difficult to encode human values in the sense of morality. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. There's so many different, there's always um, different specifics i suppose um yeah yeah it's a malleable thing we kind of use our internal compass to figure out and the thing is to encode that in clear cut you know rational values to Mm. a computer is going to be very very complicated and that's even Mm. assuming that we want to like someone could easily Mm. just make a an ai that's tries to make as much money from our financial systems as it can and Mm it can then go throw the world into poverty and take all of the money. <laughs> like, it, yeah, you don't, yeah it's, it's not necessarily, you wouldn't think to program ethics into that program. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's funny because that's basically what the financial system sort of does anyway. Well, yes. Except that the thing is, this is one that's going to be way better at it and have no limits. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, even the most evil of stock traders probably would fall short of, you know, destroying the human race. Destroying the human race, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I wouldn't I wouldn't put them past shooting someone in the face, but destroying the human race, yes. (laughs) Possibly yes. Yeah, so basically AI is so different when if if and when it reaches a point that it runs away from us, Mm. that could anything could happen. Anything. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so the final point um, that I want to discuss is dystopian scenarios. Um, and there was one paragraph that is, you know, um, particularly relevant to our podcast. And I'm just looking for it because I want to quote it. Oh, God, let me go. Do, do, do. We're waiting for Carla to find her notes in the page. It will happen eventually. (laughs) 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 But it was basically saying that if you have a world government that makes a dystopian society risk more likely because you're in the need like one... Um, power system to fuck up. Um, Whereas when you've got a whole bunch of different nations, if one of them goes completely dystopian, the rest can come in and do something about it, or at least it hasn't affected every human. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You are definitely pulling everything into one place. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Mm. I mean, it has, that's the funny thing, I think it has a lot of knock-on effects that sort of makes a lot of other versions of corruption a lot harder to get to um, mm-hmm. because the 
the muddy, erratic, confusing way that we've made the world means that if someone wants to be corrupt, there's a million ways to do it. You can hide your you know, money all over the place. You can have a weird relationship between two little things. You can exploit tax codes between two countries that, you know, have some weird loophole. Like there's, there's like a million mini versions of corruption. So you end up in this world mm. that's sort of just stuck in like semi-corruption. Mm. Um, whereas a unified government, like you'd have far, far, far fewer places that you could do that kind of thing or, you know, profit from like bits here and there but the thing is that yes the the ultimate version of corruption would be much worse by bright proportion um, yeah. so you'd have to be super fucking switched on <laughs> corruption methods to make sure that top level power is not getting compromised um but yes that is absolutely a danger yeah definitely yeah um that's yeah that's kind of the main thing i wanted to bring up about that one i mean everyone's seen a million different dystopias in science fiction movies and books so uh there's not really anything in particular and there's there's so much easier to write about when there's some big nefarious power controlling everything like it's just (laughs) narratively it's so much easier to do but really the far more likely reality is we'll just end up with a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot more people with no money yeah. <laughs> and basically just this whole narrative of freedom and economics driving everything so that people are kind of stuck in minimum wage or you know something like that or underemployment forever mm. while people have shit tons of money and no controls over them whatsoever and they think they're doing the right thing by making money yeah. um that's the far more realistic dystopia. I think we're very close to living it already. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, possibly. Um, okay, so that, that closes out that section of the book uh, and mm. closes out this episode of After This. Um, next mm. week um, I will discuss the third section of the book, which is strategies for moving forward and how we can do our best to make sure that none of these world-ending events come to pass. And I just want to quickly add that I'm very thankful that this um, more depressing episode than normal was um, read out in your voice, Carla. It was very, very nice to hear it in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shannon. It's far um, more fun than hearing me. Yeah, though. yeah. Daniel talk about gloom and doom is like it's the, it's the bass in his voice that makes you really feel that chills your bones. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lot more optimistic. It's like, oh, it's probably not. Like, you know, it's way <laughs> Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's some a, form it's of a tone of doom. Yeah, That's definitely. It's, 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 how, it's how I want the world to end to be I read to I don't feel me, you know? as concerned as maybe I should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Wonderful. Awesome. All right, that closes out. I've been Carla. I've been Daniel. And I'm still Shannon. And we will see you next week. Next week. Woo.